This is a podcast by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Australia. We are a community environmental education and capacity building organisation based in Toowoomba, South East Queensland, Australia. This is a podcast in the series Eco Social Work in Australia. It was produced for Hope Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nations people in this country and acknowledges the unique contribution that their cultures make to contemporary Australia. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the Eco-Social Work in Australia podcast series. The use of love as a practice and operational frame within social work interventions might not immediately spring to mind when social workers reflect on the range of methods and approaches available to them. Of course, the need for respectful, sensitive and compassionate approaches to client engagement, for example, using long-established concepts such as unconditional positive regard, would be an unsurprising expectation within many forms of mainstream social work practice. My guest in this episode, Dr. Naomi Godden, has, however, researched and sought to operationalise love and a love ethic within social work intervention well beyond the level of empathic Rogerian stance I've just mentioned. Within her extremely diverse CV, Dr. Godden, acting in her role as a national and international feminist participatory action researcher, has produced a number of intriguing research papers documenting, for example, the love ethic as a radical theory for social work practice and her participant observation of community development models employing such a framing in locations as diverse as Australia, Peru and Timor-Leste. She also believes that love as a practice framework has strong resonance with many of the themes and principles of importance within an eco-social work turn, to name a few, honouring Indigenous people, nurturing symbiotic human relationships with nature and the use of love as a political process to transform systems of social and environmental injustice linking to capitalism, patriarchy and racism. In this episode we talk about Dr Godden's insights into love as a social work intervention frame, the linkages it has with eco-social work principles and the possible implications of its greater uptake into the social work mainstream in the future. So welcome, Dr. Godden. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Andrew. As as has come out in time-honoured fashion with this series, I want to start the conversation by asking you to introduce yourself more fully. Can you give us some milestones uh, along your very extensive professional background evolution and also some insight into when and how you first developed your interest in love as a social work framing? I grew up in a really beautiful part of the Australian continent called Woodichup in Wadandi language, um, also known more popularly as Margaret River in the southwest corner of Australia. Um, And I think it's really important that we always start a conversation about eco-social work in place because I've always felt that the place that I grew up in has been hugely formative in who I am as a person. This Buja, this country, is is really remarkable. We have beautiful old-growth carrion jarrah forests, stunning coastline and amazing waves and I'm a surfer so I you know really enjoy those waves um and at the heart of that a really quite incredibly connected and politically active community and so I grew up in this place and had 
very strong foundations of connection to country, uh, connection to community, and was very involved particularly in youth activism and different youth movements. Being a small country town, um, if we wanted things to happen, we had to make them happen ourselves. And so um, I was really active from a very young age in a whole range of different activities, whether it was around environmental protection, um, social justice initiatives, youth engagement, youth leadership, and so on. And I remember when I was young, my mum was studying her social work degree at Edith Cowan University, which is where I now work. And she discovered bell hooks. And I remember when I was in my late teens, she told me that she thought that I had bell hooks as love ethic. And, you know, I really didn't have any idea what she was talking about and sort of, you know, grabbed the old book that had been um, read many times by my mum and started to delve into that. And I guess that's where my relationship with the notion of the love ethic and bell hooks in particular began. So I engaged in activism and community development for many decades of my life now. Um, activism for social justice, for environmental justice, climate justice, gender justice, you know, every kind of area of justice and how they intersect between people and place. I've worked locally in Woodichup, in Wadandi Wudja, um, with my community here, but I've also worked in a variety of different places and contexts as well. So I've worked in Northern Western Australia, um, worked for Oxfam International and other aid, aid organisations in the Asia-Pacific region. I've worked in Peru in a small little fishing village, been part of UN spaces and, of course, in the last decade or 15 years in a range of different university contexts as well. And I guess, you know, I think has always been a theme through all of the practice in my work um, and, and it's evolved and it's certainly not a static notion for me. Um, but I guess, you know, in 20, in early, in around 2012, I PhD, and that was very much looking at love in social work practice, in particular in the community work context. I was really involved in gender leadership and social sustainability research unit at Monash University with Professor Margaret Alston. And so a lot of my work as well, as a research assistant, um, was involved in gender and climate change research. And equally, the various international aid contexts I was working in were looking at gender and social justice in the context of environmental change. About 10, no, about eight years ago, I returned back to Woodichup, back to Margaret River. And um, as we do, cross with my partner and um, not that long later, we found ourselves having children. So it's it's kind of a beautiful circle of return as it as now in my mid-30s to be returning back home to my community and raising my own children here on country um, in this beautiful place, in this beautiful community, and being very actively involved in environmental and social justice activism at this local level in my community and, of course, at those other different levels. So right now I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow at Edith Cowan University on the Bunbury campus. Um, I'm doing, I have a whole research program on climate change and social justice using feminist participatory action research in partnership with social movements and grassroots organisations locally and internationally to demand structural change. And um, alongside that, the past four years, I've um, been a counsellor at the Shire of Augusta Margaret River and I retired a few months ago. Um, so being involved in policy making again very strongly from that climate justice and social justice lens, and um, I also chair a, a, 
a not-for-profit organisation in my community that I co-founded with a bunch of community members experiencing homelessness. It's called Just Home Margaret River, and we very much work from a, a solidarity model of lived experience and a fairer housing system in our community. So I guess this all comes together um, to arrive, you know, at, at the point where you've invited me very graciously to talk to you today, Andrew. Well, Naomi, I tell you what, what an amazing background and also just, you know, always probably obsessively in my case, uh, thinking about eco-social work themes specifically, but that continuity of practice development you just described there, uh, practice, personal life, philosophy coming together across a whole number of years. And also that very interesting, strong connection to place, which again is another strong theme in eco-practice. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the likes of Kim Zapf, people as place, you know, arguing for a change of the foundational metaphor of social work. So very rich um, background to even start before we even started to get into the, the nub of uh, the discussion today. But uh, thank you for contextualising it. So, look, let's come to the first um, substantive question uh, in the actual uh, four questions I'm going to ask you today, which is, for you, what is the meaning and significance of a love ethic specifically within eco-social work practice? I mean, I framed it like that. We've had some previous discussions around this, but as you know, I'm particularly interested in seeing the alignments, the synergies between this very fascinating um, area of love ethic um, influence and eco-social work specifically. So what do you make of that uh, in 2022? So as I said before, Bell Hooks, is um, you know really foundational in thinking about the love ethic internationally. Bell Hooks was a an African American feminist, um, wrote prol prolifically about love and about social change, um, and really coming from that that strong feminist lens. Sadly, she passed earlier this year. Um, a real oh, sorry, the end of last year, a real loss for oh, I think for the world actually, and. Um, it was amazing the moment that we heard that she passed. Many activists were contacting me and I was contacting them. We'd never met her, but it was just this, this loss of this woman who had contributed so much to thinking around gender equality, around intersectionality, and in this case in particular, as engaged in my work around what is love and what is a love ethic. So, you know, I um, I don't really feel like the the, the thinking that I have around love is particularly mine. I actually am very much referencing her work when I talk about the love ethic. And Bell Hooks really spoke about love as a verb. So for her, it wasn't um, an emotion. Uh, it wasn't a feeling. It was around action. And she's very clear about that, that love is an action to dismantle systems of oppressive power. And she talks all the time about the white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy and love being an antidote to that system. And so it's it's not a, a wishy-washy sort of um, flimsy notion. It's very, very grounded in a radical alternative to our structures of unjust power. <laughs> Through my reading of her work and, you know, drawing from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist philosopher who also passed earlier this year and had worked a lot with Bell Hooks, um, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Mahatma Gandhi, other revolutionary thinkers, Love was a very common theme through their writings and work as well. And I guess what's really clear for me when thinking about the love ethic is it really is about the interconnectedness of people, the interconnectedness of people and place or the environment, and that our liberation and our rights really are bound together. So love is very much centred around this notion of solidarity and thinking beyond, you know, really challenging, I guess, the dominant um, Western concepts of people 
in, in hierarchy or positions of power over and the, the hierarchical position of humans in domination over the environment and rather under, uh, really shifting this understanding to one of being alongside and being in solidarity and, you know, removing ideas of, of uh, there being a greater level of importance of some species over others. So for me, the love ethic really connects with eco-social work. Um, I've done some writing in particular about Gwen Vivia, and I'll just talk a little bit about that because, again, this is not my knowledge. I, I'm, you know, sharing from what other people have been talking about and thinking about in some cases for millennia, particularly Indigenous people. Gwen Vivia is a Latin American concept from Indigenous people across the continent of Latin America. And in Spanish, it, it translates to be living well or the good life. And really Buen Vivir considers quite strongly this notion of the collective rights of people and environment. It uh, centres around this idea of a solidarity economy. So really throwing out the notion of the neoliberal capitalist growth trajectory and thinking about the way that we have a paradigm around development and practice around that of being in solidarity, of it addressing the rights of all species the needs of all species in doing so in a flourishing way so that we can all live a good life. And so eco-social work, in my mind, really connects with Buen Vivia, um, or, in it, or it should. It should really be drawing from some of these, these, these quite powerful Indigenous notions. It is about holism. It's about um, the interconnectedness and the relatedness between people and between people and place. So, again, like it shifts from humans being at the centre to humans and non-humans coexisting in harmony. Um, I think it's about reframing justice as well. So for a long time, social workers have been very focused on social justice. We're starting to see more discussion around eco-justice, environmental justice, but still humans are quite often centred in that discussion. What I'm really liking is some of these discussions coming through around, at the moment, around interspecies justice and multi-species justice. So understanding that the rights of the possum in my tree have as much validity as my rights as a human. And then as a social worker, what does that mean in our practice? How do we move beyond the human-centeredness of social work to really think about rights and justice for all who are inhabiting a place and how our um, social work approaches can be working towards achieving those rights? This is quite a dramatic shift, really, I think, for social workers. Um, you know, even the very fact that we're called social workers suggests that we have social and social justice, you know, humanity at our centre. Um, and so, you know, for me, the kind of the coupling of the love ethic with, with eco-social work helps me to really reframe and reposition myself in solidarity with all species because really at the core of the love ethic is that notion of solidarity, of walking alongside, of, of championing each other politically for our collective rights and eco-social work is a practice framework of being able to do that. And I guess another notion I think that's really vital um, in both the love ethic and eco-social work, and I think it's probably helpful for us to bring them together because I think in this, in, you know, as you and I are both framing it, I think they are really connected, is understanding social work as activism. So the, the roots of social work um, have always been in change, in, in, in challenging structures of injustice, of uh, trying to bring about change, of standing up, of advocacy, of a whole range of spaces like that. I um, strongly 
really promote that that all social workers, we should see ourselves as activists. It doesn't mean that we're all out in the street with a banner or chaining ourselves to to tractors uh, or, or, sorry, to logging equipment, but it does mean that we are understanding that we have a role to critically analyse and try and dismantle systems of, of, of unjust power and then using our position as social workers to collectively with our community and in our places create a better world for all species. Again, Naomi, fantastic grounding in the principles and, and background to these concepts, um, <clears throat> a love ethic, and then coming up through Indigenous wisdom perspectives, stewardship perspectives, you mentioned Buen Vivir in Latin America, and then and then just anchoring that. I, I, I mean, it just occurs to me off the top of my head, you know, like we're in the midst of um, World Social Work Day celebrations that recently passed. There's the IFSW's conference coming up later in the year, at the end of June, early July. And, you know, the, the, the topic there, co-building an eco-social world, I mean, you extended the debate there to other than humans as well in terms of it. And I, I mean, at its purest level, from my perspective anyway, the co-building would include uh, concern for other species that can't be represented in the traditional human framing. So very, very interesting, useful stuff. You've already started to introduce this, um, the answers to this next question, but I want to ask you now to sort of drill down further because I know that you've been in your participant action research and uh, various other, um, you know, international sort of observational practices. You, you've actually touched upon a whole series of projects and stuff. So can I ask you to be a bit more specific here and, and, and ask, I'll ask this question. In your view, how can a love ethic or eco-social work-based approach to social work practice help tackle some key international sustainability challenges? For example, global heating, climate disruption, gendered violence, growing socioeconomic inequality or other environment and social justice linked challenges. I mean, no, no, um, no great sweat there. No, I mean, there's a, there's a whole ba a grab bag of stuff you could uh, you could focus on there. Yeah, I might, I might um, obviously I don't have all the answers, but I might just share a little bit about an approach that I'm taking, which is my way of, of trying to tackle some of these um, very wicked problems through eco-social work practice. So as I mentioned before, my uh, methodological paradigm as a social worker is feminist participatory action research. And, you know, people sort of might hear that and go, oh, it's a, it's a research approach. But in my mind, it's actually not. Feminist participatory action research, or FPAR, in my mind is actually quite a powerful methodology for eco-social work. FPAR really is about communities uh, generating, so taking inquiry collectively about the injustices they're experiencing in their lives, generating their own knowledges in their own, in their own expertise of these lived experiences, positioning those injustices in those structures of unjust power, patriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, colonialism, the predominant economic frame, and so on, and then using that knowledge to inform place-based community-led activism for social change. As a researcher, um, which is obviously the current hat I'm playing at, at ECU, I use FPAR all the time in my um, community work, in the work that I do with communities. And so I'm, a, I'm not undertaking the research myself. I'm walking alongside in solidarity with communities and supporting them to go through this FPAR And so through FPAR, it's very much this methodology of research and activism for social change, where communities are co-researchers, not participants. They're not extracted from for the purpose of generating new knowledge. 
they themselves are the co-creators of their knowledge and in using that to take quite significant um, steps in activism to demand their rights, very much coming from that powerful structural lens. Uh, this approach is very inclusive. It has a very strong intersectional lens and understands how different axes of power intersect to create you know, unjust social conditions. And it's totally integrated in our processes of activism around community organising, uh, advocacy, lobbying, protest, grassroots community programs and so on. So if, in my work I've been using FPAR with a lot of climate justice movements um, and I'll talk about one program in the Asia-Pacific because I think this is a really great example of how this works in practice. So I've been working in partnership with the Asia-Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development now for several years. So APWLD is a secretariat organisation of about 200 women's rights organisations in the Asia-Pacific region. Their head office is in Thailand and they have partner orgs all across the region. And they use FPAR as their main methodology to achieve their theory of change. And their theory of change is, you know, very um, ambitious, which is really to dismantle systems of globalisation, fundamentalism, militarism and patriarchy in order to create a world of justice for people and planet. Uh, and they do so through a whole range of different activities and thematic foci, and one of them is climate justice. So I was involved in their climate justice feminist participatory action research program as a research advisor and leading a, a participatory evaluation of that program. And what APWD do is they bring together uh, every couple of years 10 women's rights organisations with a young woman researcher and a mentor selected from each organisation. And these women uh, engage in different in, in a series of training programs around feminist research, action, feminist participatory action research methodology. So they then, and then taking that training and that learning, they then engage with their community and support women in their communities to undertake research about the gendered impacts of climate change in the community and thinking about, you know, the policies and structures that are bringing about those injustices for them and then with their communities generating, you know, research reports and then using that to inform localised community-led uh, activism to try and, you know, dismantle or change some of those unfair structures, laws and systems. And what we have found through this program, which has now had a couple of rounds, is that the FPAR process is really powerful and it's actually seeing huge momentum being gained around women in the Asia region in particular, building uh, women's grassroots movements, having quite a significant impact in challenging uh, unfair laws and governance processes around both climate change and women's rights. Um, we're seeing women for the first time in their lives engaging in um, quite, in some cases, really radical direct action in places like Pakistan where it's extremely dangerous to do so because they're collectivising and they're together using that power, even as really marginalised women, to claim their rights. And what I guess what's really powerful about this methodology in my mind is that it's it's not something where there's a donor organisation that's helping, you know, a community and there's not a, a traditional researcher that's coming into a community and, you know, doing some research in the hope that it might one day have an impact on the governance structures. This is all about communities themselves 
to using their power to generate their own knowledge to inform their activism to demand their rights. And so, yeah, I guess I'm writing a paper at the moment on eco-social work and FPAR because I do think it's quite a radical shift in how we think about this relationship between research, community development and, um, you know, climate change, for example, or other kind of, um, you know, really complex issues that we're facing as communities. So that's one example of, of the practice I'm involved in. Um, and I'm doing this sort of work locally in my own community, uh, in WA and in, in across Australia and in the Asia-Pacific region. So it's, there's different scales and places and contexts. And we're just finding that it's it's such a powerful way and such a um, of, of doing this sort of work. Um, another project I'll just talk about quickly is an Australian case study, Australian project. And this is looking at climate activism in Australia and how we can be bringing a, a stronger gender and feminist lens and intersectional lens into climate justice activism. So the, the climate movement in Australia is quite technologically focused. It has quite a strong focus on shifting for, to renewable energy, to, you know, um, looking at different technologies for how we can address these issues, which, you know, there's a lot of feminist um, thinkers talking about this as the techno-patriarchy, that, you know, it's not actually shifting and changing the, the roots of what, are, what is the basis of the climate crisis. So the, 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 roots is the, the basis of the climate crisis is not our emissions, the basis of the climate crisis is the white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy. So that's what we need to address. Just shifting into a renewable structure is not actually going to shift and change the way our world is structured. We need to actually dismantle these systems of power in order to address the climate crisis. And so climate justice are really understanding that and it's people of colour and Indigenous folks that have been leading this work for a very long time, particularly in the global south. In the Australian context, this hasn't this thinking hasn't permeated through the movement yet. It's still very technologically focused. You know, how can we resolve the climate crisis within the neoliberal frame? And so, there are a number of us in the Australian movement that are trying to challenge this thinking and bringing this gendered and intersectional lens into the. And so, we've just completed a couple of year project where we developed a consciousness raising program for climate justice activists around gender intersectionality and climate justice with a collective process where um, about 150 activists participated in about 15 different programs that we provided, led by climate justice activists with intersectionality experts leading the processes for these collective discussions and processes to think about, you know, what is the relationship between colonialism and climate change? And what are the gendered impacts of climate change and experiences in our community? What does an intersectional lens mean when we're doing our climate justice activism? What are gender just and climate just solutions? What does it mean to, for a climate solution to actually uphold human rights? And this sort of, you know, challenge, really intervening and challenging in the movement. Um, and again, we've used a feminist participatory action research methodology where collectively the consciousness raising process has been to really unpack and work through these notions and concepts um, while collecting data through that process so that we can actually then present the data back to the movement to show the movement where we're at, what are our strengths in this thinking and where are the huge gaps and work that we need to, to do to really challenge and grow our movement in a way that puts people and planet at the centre, in particular people who are on the front line, Indigenous communities and people of colour and people on low incomes and, of course, our 
our environment. You know, how can this relationship between people and place really be centred in the way that we address climate justice in our communities? So I guess they're just a couple of examples of um, what I see as eco-social work practice. Um, you know, this is uh, it's activist work, unashamedly and unapologetically, um, integrating research and activism together in a way that's kind of complex and messy and not particularly, um, certainly not, you know, easily kind of explained or, or traditional. Um, and then intertwined in that, again, is this, is this love ethic notion because it really is throughout everything that I'm trying to do, this notion of solidarity, of wholeness, of, of connectedness, and this, this idea that our liberation of all species in this kind of dire position we find ourselves in humanity um, is bound up together. Well, again, I just, I think, I just love, you know, just taking up that last point. I love that common theme because, you know, that, that they are so rich example, case study examples, you know, almost to uh, try and summarise that. But, the, the, you know, one theme is that relatedness uh, thread that is running through all of this. But again, what a fantastic outline there, community capacity building model using a feminist lens that's leading, you know, to actual practical, radical, emancipatory outcomes on the ground, action research based. And then, you know, this critique, I suppose, or uh, framing that even stuff like, you know, which at one sort of mundane level is seen to be a good thing. Yeah, greenhouse gas reductions, let's achieve, let's achieve those. Uh, within the sort of in overall environmental needs, you know, eco-social work practice or otherwise. But you're also then bringing a more subtle level of analysis there in the sense of, yeah, but not through a techno fix that doesn't achieve system level change, because unless that patriarchal, neoliberal um, underpinning to the whole kit and caboodle is actually changed, then really we're just going to go around in a circle. We might get some, uh, you know, some reductions, but ultimately the growth-based model and whatever you want to take is, is going to be left untouched. So, I, I mean, again, just fantastic stuff. Look, and look, we're seeing, we're seeing this internationally, right? So uh, when I was at, in Morocco for the UN climate conference, um, Moroccan activists were participating, talking about how the Moroccan government was really, really proud of their huge um, solar panels, the solar farm that they had created. In doing so, they had displaced Indigenous peoples from their homelands. Again, you know, there are huge questions and issues about this as we roll out these alternative technologies. Who are the people who are benefiting from this and who are the people who are not? And further, what are the other species that benefit and don't benefit or, or who, you know, who are ab abjectly affected by the sorts of processes and changes that are happening? And it's really not as simple as who's benefiting and who's not. There's far more levels of complexity around that. But equally, it's not as easy as just going, let's just create these new technological structures and hope that this fixes the problem. Carbon farming is another one. If, we, if we're, you know, trying to use um, offsetting through mass planting of trees to, you know, try and draw down some carbon from the atmosphere, we can do that in a way that can actually be worse for the environment if we have, you know, um, plantations of only one variety and then really disrupting ecosystems so how we do that in a regenerative way drawing from indigenous knowledges and wisdoms being responsive to place all of these things need to come into play when we're thinking about the approaches and how we're tackling climate change and i guess you know we're all in australia in particular we're still trying to navigate this this strong wedded relationship that we have between government and the fossil fuel industry um, and so as we're going through, so, you know, a lot of the responses to climate in this country are politically so fraught 
but also the thinking is at such a low level because it's just been so heavily politicised, which is absolutely tragic. But what I'm seeing is that in local government, for example, which is grounded in place and back to the local, is that, you know, local governments everywhere on the front line of climate change, local governments in Australia are responsible for over 80% of assets in the whole country. So you know, there's a huge amount of responsibility to actually tackle the realities of what climate looks like as it manifests and intensifies across our continent. Um, as a local government councillor in that position that I had over the last four years, I really came from a strong frame of how could we mainstream climate justice, social justice and Indigenous knowledges across all areas of our policies, strategies and our budget as, as a local government. A huge undertaking, but nevertheless also showing how important it is for us to move away from the silo of the environment or climate change to be dealt with by a business unit within the local government or within, or within a university or so on or an organisation because these ideas actually need to be across everything. Climate change and social justice, Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous sovereignty are relevant in every single decision we make in every area of our work. We just need to think about it. And so I guess this is about coming from that, that ethic of community and ethic of place and really using that as a frame for our decision-making and rejecting and really resisting this dominant neoliberal paradigm, which just, you know, increasingly and continues to, to, to plague us as humans. I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, I mean, I suppose just doing some sort of a summarising um, comment there and looking at it from a historical point of view uh, to some extent, I mean, it's 30 plus years since we had, you know, sustainability um, first come onto the radar. It, it was It's never been, in my humble view, uh, properly operationalised. It's never been authentically operationalised. The close interconnection of environment, society and uh, social justice, you know, and, uh, and um, the economy, the true sustainability, the triple bottom line, call it what you like has never actually been practiced so it's great to hear that you know both within a social work frame but also uh in your own life you're seeking to to make those links to get that joined up thinking happening uh that any sort of development worth its its name has to be actively f factoring in the environment society and the economy but giving them if not equal um you, you know sort of weights certainly more than we've got at the moment which is like a, everything is is seen through the economic lens so the fact that you're trying to bring bring that in through your practice and also your private work in terms of uh, private sort of life in terms of your political representation role and all that sort of stuff it's fantastic and it's also demonstrating that point of holism you mentioned the wicked problems that we're dealing with um, that require an interdisciplinary, cross-sectoral, collaborative approach if we're ever going to be solved in terms of sustainability practice. Um, but you're also demonstrating that continuity in your own working life and your own private life. You know, there is no division. You see the continuity of those principles across your whole range of roles. So, so given all of that, Naomi, it almost seems sacrilegious to ask you this next question, but I... I've attempted to get a little bit of critical dialogue into this series just to show that this is not some sort of, you know, straightforward, like only um, looking at the positive aspects. But why should mainstream social work uh, practice, the profession, be involved in this case with the use of a love ethic and eco-social work principles? Why should it be concerned with tackling the sort of linked environmental and social justice frame problems we've just been discussing? I've been going through uh, an interesting process by participating in various social work departments over the past 15 years in different universities around social work education in 
being part of the process of trying to argue for this. So you know, this is um, this is not a new kind of question for me. Um, if we think about it, social work must respond to, to the context. So social work is never a, an isolated practice that exists in a bubble. We are consistently working with people in places in greater global contexts. And the context that we have right now, which is completely um, unable to be refuted, is that we are in a changing climate, in a in very much a worsening climate with, with increased intensity and frequency of climate-induced disasters. We have extreme environmental degradation. We know that we've reached the tipping points for several different um, uh, biodiversity uh, indicators. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic, which we know, uh, you know, these, these pandemics manifest because of the broken relationship between people and the environment. And, of course, we have growing and gross inequalities in wealth, in housing, in health. You know, just looking in the Australian context, we know that that's the case, let alone thinking internationally. These current challenges are here. We know they are, and social work must respond to them in the way that we do our work. And so it's, it's just um, irresponsible, I think, for social work to not think about our environmental context when we're engaged in our practice. And I guess we've always had a systems theory approach in social work, right? And people in environment has been a big feature. I think environment and how it was defined was more about people in the, maybe the structural context rather than I think where so eco-social work has done a really great job of, of making sure that we really understand that environment to actually be the ecology and the ecologies that we're in. And so, you know, we know that there's heaps of, research and evidence about these links between ecological and social justice. We know, for example, that um, under climate change, during and after climate events, we see increased violence against women. We know that health, uh, there are huge health impacts, that people are made homeless, that there's big issues around access to food. And we're just seeing that right now with the floods that happened in Queensland and New South Wales. Um, we know that as uh, when there are environmental disasters or when there are you know, like, like an oil spill, that it's people, usually impoverished people, generally people of colour who are at most risk of experiencing the pollutions that occur, and that's where the whole environmental justice movement came about, for example. So, you know, we, we know that there's a relationship between ecological disaster and social injustice, um, and social work, you know, just needs to understand that and work with that, and I think that that's kind of, you know, I think there is a, a general understanding around that. What I think is possibly needs to grow around social work and mainstream social work in thinking about how we tackle these notions and what does this really mean for the social work profession is that communities and places on the front lines of climate change and ecological degradation are agents of change. They have knowledge and wisdoms about their places, about their communities and about resilience. In, in, in Noongar Buja, for example, in the corner of Australia that I live in, the Noongar people experienced a 10,000-year drought and they survived that. Now, 10,000 years, I can't even conceptualise the length of that time. If we think about Noongar people who've been on, on this planet for 65,000 years and 10,000 of that, they experienced drought and that was, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30,000 years ago and there's still a flourishing people. I mean, that's an extraordinary, long wisdom and knowledge that Noongar people have. If, you know, when we think about tackling these crises 
I think the mainstream social work profession really needs to um, dismantle this idea of, of Western, uh, you know, particularly neoliberalised philosophies as informing our work and take a position of cultural humility and look at where survival and resilience has occurred and is continues to occur in our places. Indigenous knowledges and wisdoms are here and have been here for a long time. In, in Nuabuja, where I live, um, you know, this, this environment, this place was very carefully cared for for a long, long, long time. And after two, 200 years of colonisation, we see the impacts that we're, you know, we're experiencing right now. So social work is, is in this context. And social work, we must also recognise, has colonial and patriarchal roots. And in many of the places that we're practising our social work, we're really embedded in the neoliberal capitalist mindset. If we're part of bureaucracies, if we're part of, you know, growth trajectory not-for-profits, we are bound up in these systems. Eco-social work and the love ethic really are deliberate challenges to social work colluding in and upholding these unjust structures. So we all have a role to play in this and we need to think about, you know, when we come from this systemic advocacy or systemic so change position for social work, that includes thinking really, um, really comprehensively about what is social work doing to actually collude in these structures. Because if we are, if, if we are to contribute to dismantling these oppressive structures, then we really must reposition and reimagine social work from what I think is this activist orientation. And, you know, these are big challenges for mainstream social work, um, and particularly when social work is funded by, you know, largely governments and um, philanthropies. And, you know, there's a great book called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded that talks about how can we come from an activist, radical activist paradigm when those that fund us to do that have an agenda, you know, that's contrary to our own. These are the hard questions around what it means to to think about eco-social work in mainstream so in, in the mainstream social work profession. But I think this is part of what this period of time is is, is needing, needing us to do. Well, Naomi, that's such an excellent and, and so clearly articulated answer. And you might not have provided all the answers, but you've certainly you know, posed the questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, Again, just so such a rich um, exposition there. I, I just like that um, couple of references, you know, once again to learning from indigenous wisdom and stewardship uh, based on tens of thousands of years of experience of, of in, in the case you mentioned climatic change. It certainly contextualizes the the cheap use of terms like resilience that are being banded around in the current context, you know, white Eurocentric views of what resilience is about. I mean, come on, you know. Um, but look, I think you've nicely um, sort of set us up for, as we've moved towards the end of this uh, very detailed and, and uh, well thought through uh, interview that um, the next question, which is starting to look to the future, and you've really started a point to this, you know, uh, where can social work position itself in the short to midterm future, say the next 10 years? So the question is specifically, what could or should the short to midterm future, say the next ten, two to 10 years, hold for mainstream social work approaches, which incorporate love and eco-social work principles as a practice frame, either in Australia, internationally, or both? So I think that at the outset, social work needs to reclaim feminism, uh, sorry, reclaim activism 
as a key identity and activity of social work. And I mean activism in its various forms. So I don't just mean going out with a banner and protesting, although that is obviously a key part of activism. But I think it's about really coming from that political position of critically analysing structures of injustice and being proactive collectively to try and resist and change those structures uh, in whatever form that looks like. So, you know, activism can occur at very small micro levels. It can occur through mass movements. It can occur through advocacy and lobbying for individuals, for groups in communities, you know, at national and international levels. It's There's no one kind of particular approach to activism. But I do think that if we're, if we're to seriously try and have social work as a key player in trying to address the global crises that we're facing, then we really need to reclaim activism as part of as a key part of social work and who we are and what we do. I think we need to also be more strategic about social work in oppressive structures. And I talked a bit about that before. And this is about this reflexivity individually and collectively as a, as a, as a profession. How are we resisting? How are we prefiguring? So how are we building the new and the shell of the old? How are we transforming? Love is action, as Bell Hooks tells us. How are we practising love in all our spaces? How are we taking that action to dismantle and, and build, dismantle systems of injustice and build, build the new ones collectively that uphold our core values as a social work? I don't think it's... Um, I really think that, that there's the hard questions we all need to ask individually and collectively across the profession in our workplaces of, you know, where's our ethical line? Um, and when we think about this global and interconnected eco-social work ethic, what does this mean in my daily practice? And am I okay with how I'm participating in, potentially colluding in these various systems and structures that I believe need to be unpacked, or oh, sorry, need, need to be dismantled? This is a really, really hard question. You know, we all need to earn money to have a living and, and feed ourselves and clothe and, you know, have a home for our kids and so on. Um, and so, you know, a job is part of that. And most jobs are positioned in generally um, colonial, patriarchal organisations and institutions. <laughs> but it's we still need to have these questions. We still need to go through this and we need to kind of realise to what extent am I part of trying to actively resist and change these. And this is where being part of a union is really important, um, being part of activist movements external to your workplace but also within your workplace and really thinking collectively and this is coming back always to the collective, how are we part of the force for change both in our institutions and in the greater structural and political forces. So I think that that's, that's the sort of paradigm shift that um, I think we all need to be undertaking, you know, through the pandemic, we have seen there's so much need for social workers uh, and where, you know, the kind of issues that we work with have all just become even more manifold. And, yeah, our practices, our structures, really they all, they all need to be under critique if we're thinking about where we can be working towards a fairer, just and cleaner world for everyone, for all species. I think also another opportunity over the next decade is around mainstreaming climate change and the environment into all social work education curriculum. Like I said before, this is our context, this is our reality, it's inescapable. Climate change is already here and the trajectory that humanity is on is immensely scary. What we're looking at by 2100 is something that's almost unfathomable. 
We can't silo eco-social work as a field of practice or a particular domain or a philosophy. I really believe it needs to be our everything. This needs to be the way that we see all social work practice. And what I sometimes hear is things like, well, you know, I work in child protection. I don't really see how the environment's relevant to that. I think it's everything. It's it's totally part of any form of, of practice, including child protection. If we think about, you know, during the disasters we've just experienced, there would be huge child protection issues that are coming up within households, within, within communities. Um, evacuation centres, for example, can be really unsafe places potentially. Um, we know that the displacement of Aboriginal peoples from country has huge implications for the connectedness of families and for the engagement of child protection forces. So, you know, these are all, they're all interplayed. They're all interlinked. The environment is not something that sits out there. It is part of all that we're doing. And I guess just, you know, coming back to, I think it really is around acknowledging those challenges and those restraining influences on our practice bureaucratisation, managerialism, branding and marketing, you know, this neoliberalisation of social justice that we're just seeing across the profession, across the institutions we work in. I think it's about being individually and collectively reflexive of our power. How am I benefiting from and contributing to white supremacy, colonialism, to patriarchy? How can we reclaim community development and activism as the core modes of social work practice? How can we step forward? and also step back in our privileged positions as social workers. Naomi, I mean, again, attempting to summarise a very articulate presentation, but I mean, I suppose in very simple language, it's not even necessarily professional. What I take from that is it's time, as it's, as it's been for quite a long time, for the, the social work profession as a whole to get real in the sense of, to my mind, in my personal view, you've given us a rallying call there for getting back to that more transformative tradition within social work practice, you know, less of the ameliorative tinkering around the edges dictated by neoliberal capitalist institutions, more of the radical activism process in terms of whether it's community capacity building or whatever other model, uh, participate, participatory action research with a feminist lens. I mean, again, you know, this the this um, call has been around for quite some time. I, I sort of one of my favorite quotes I just I discovered and I keep on coming back to it is John Coates. On, uh, from Coates has a quote from about 2003, which he says, I mean, to paraphrase that quote, is something like, you know, social work has a choice of whether to continue to support a self-defeating order. Um, you know, modernism, however that's dressed up, however you want to interpret that, but neoliberalism, patriarchy, capitalism. Um, 2003, and here we are, you know, 20 odd years down the track and we're still calling for this. But nonetheless, fantastic that you are. That was my interpretation of what you just said. You're calling for it. Um, and again, Coming back to the very topical theme of uh, IFSW, World Social Work Day and the conference coming up, you know, co-building uh, an eco-social world. Well, that does involve, as you perhaps implied, the cooperation and involvement of the training institutions, professional groupings, employing agencies. I mean, we need all need to get our act together. Might be a simplistic, um, uh, non-academic way of putting it from my from my perspective. I hope that's OK. I hope that does justice to what you just said. Look, um, Coming to the end of this very rich interview, um, finally, Dr. Godden, um, I'm going to ask you to, because you've covered such a, a wide smorgasbord of stuff, and I, that, on that theory that people tend to remember the, the beginning and end of any presentation, um, could you give us uh, one idea 
uh, that, or just, you know, a, a sort of a few sentences that it might, and it's probably impossible to ask, but in order to summarise for listeners what you've been talking about, a short take-home message or one key idea from our conversation today that represents your overall comments, a, a linking theme perhaps, or something like that that they can take away and mull over as they leave cyberspace. It's a real privilege to be a social worker. I think we need to remember and acknowledge that and use that to the greatest extent that we can to bring about the change that's needed for our world. I think a key part of eco-social work practice and actually social work practice itself um, more generally and thinking about how the love ethic is infused in that is really around solidarity, solidarity between humans and solidarity between humans and non-humans. This solidarity is vital as we're struggling collectively for a positive common future. And it's through that solidarity, it's through that notion of collectivism, of the ethic of community, the ethic, the collective ethic of care, that we can and must challenge the structures of power that are so oppressive and are bringing about the, the crises that we're facing. And I guess to conclude, you know, I want to return back to social work is activism. In all our work, in whatever spaces we're in, in whatever kind of context we're in, we can protest, we can resist, we can dismantle the injustice systems and we can and must creatively create our world. What a lovely place to leave it. Um, one last you know, time for that rallying call. That completes the interview. It, it's an understatement to say it's been an immense pleasure to talk with you today. I'm sure you've given our audience you know, a, a whole range of pro genuinely provocative ideas in the best sense of that term, which can help inform their own thinking and start conversations on the subject of the use of a love ethic. Uh, but also within eco-social work principles aligned with that in their own social work practice with their friends, colleagues, within employing organisations, in their professional associations, in the spirit of that theme of the IFSW co-building an eco-social world. But in the process, in the meanwhile, it just reminds for me, uh, remains for me on behalf of Householders Options to Protect the Environment to thank you very much for your insights today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast episode in the series Eco-Social Work in Australia, produced for Householders Options to Protect the Environment. Please consult the episode text notes for possible references to topics discussed and relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.